Welcome to the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast, also known as the SASPod. I am Lalita Duperon, Associate Director in the Center for South Asia. All our podcasts and information about the center are available at southasia.stanford.edu. Today, I welcome on the SASPod Shripad Tulja Tuljapurkar, Professor of Biology and the Dean and Virginia Morrison, Professor of Population Studies at Stanford. Tulja directs demographic programs at Stanford Center for the Demography, Economics and Health of Aging, and the Stanford Center for Population Research in the Institute for Research in the Social Sciences. He is an affiliated faculty member with the Morrison Institute for Population and Resource Studies, the Woods Institute for the Environment, and the Interdisciplinary Program on Environment and Resources. However, the way I found out about Tulja's work is when I was going through the Explore Courses course list to find classes that I could tag for the South Asian minor. And I chanced upon a class about the chili pepper. I was completely fascinated and I invited Tulja onto the podcast. He kindly sent me the syllabus while I was preparing today's episode. And the opening line is, chili peppers are known, used, treasured, and sometimes feared worldwide. What's not to love about a syllabus that starts like that? So all you undergraduates out there, sign up for the Global Studies minor with specialization in South Asia and or enroll in Bio 9N Chilies, Biology, History, Travels, Cuisine. The syllabus looks phenomenal and I am delighted to talk about chilies and other matters with Professor Tulja Purkar today. Tulja, welcome to the SASPod. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. So before we zoom into the chili, tell us a bit more about yourself. What are some of the main things you work on? So I work really in two main areas. One is uh, population biology, ecology, evolution. Um, and there I tend to work uh, mostly on a range of mammalian species and, as, and also on plants. Uh, those are the two main things that I've focused on. I've done a bit of work on other things as well, such as fish and what have you. But those are the two primary things I'm working on now. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other part of my research is really on human demography. And this is things like what is happening to mortality or death in the human population, fertility rates, uh, projections of population, um, how you use those to think about social security pensions and that sort of thing. So those sound like two completely separate su- subjects. Where where do they come together? They come together in part because I'm using a quantitative approach to understanding how populations change. And so, um, and populations change in pretty much the same basic ways, regardless of whether they are humans or non-humans. So for example, you have births, deaths, growth, 
uh, migration, uh, that sort of stuff. And that's exactly what happens both with animals and uh, such as deer or um, bears or whatever, and, <laughs> and humans. Um, and so, it, you know, at some fundamental level, they are connected. Uh, the, the factors that drive these things are obviously different for different species. But um, the essential processes we're trying to understand um, are the same. Uh, we just understand the drivers of these processes are different in different species. So would you say that in some essential way we're, we're all the same? Is that really what you're saying? That it's essentially the same but different? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not gonna I'm not gonna get an A plus in your class. I can already see that. <laughs> <laughs> well, it depends on the class. Uh, but certainly, yes. I mean, I think there's a lot of commonality in the way um the dynamics of populations work, um, regardless of the species. There are tremendous differences in detail um in terms of what's actually going on. Uh, I think with humans, we tend to know. Um, a great deal more about individuals and the forces that affect them than we do with uh, natural populations, which is probably not so good. But, you know, uh, natural populations do have a lot of importance in the way we shape uh, our environment and the way the environment shapes us. So I think it's kind of nice to be able to think about both of these things in some connected fashion using the same structures to think about them. I love that there's a, that it seems like there's actually quite a strong philosophical component to your work. Um, so if, um, just to go back to my earlier um, a conclusion that if we are all um, somewhat the same, um, I wonder how that impacts diets um, because, um, I, more and more people are embracing vegetarian or vegan diets because they're more sustainable, but there's also a compassion element. Um, and then you get the jokers. They're like, well, cauliflower has feelings too. Uh, and so, right, <laughs> uh, I, I'm getting a very broad smile to our listeners who can't see, who, who can't see us. Um, uh, yeah. So what do we do with that now? I mean, is there an ethical way of eating and, and what are the different things that we should consider in terms of resources and numbers? Well, I think ethics is, it's not an absolute thing, unfortunately. Um, and, and the way we tend to think about what we eat and the ethical aspects of what we eat um, is to a large extent context dependent. And it's culturally dependent that we tend to ask these questions mostly when we have a lot of things that we can eat. Um, so the assumption that's often made um, in the industrialized countries is that eating vegetarian food somehow is better from an ethical standpoint. It's also better from an energetic standpoint. Uh, um, and so on, but it, it relies on, on assumptions. It relies on the assumption that you can walk down to the store and find a tremendous array of vegetables to eat, which wasn't true in this country 50 years ago. I mean, if you went um, 50 years ago, they used to wrap individual peppers with plastic, you know, because they were considered a fairly exotic vegetable. You couldn't get 
avocados uh, except in season. I mean, there was a, there is a tremendous difference in in that um, the availability of foods, um, and I think that people don't fully understand this. The assumption is that well, you can always eat berries. Well, <laughs> berries are a very seasonal seasonal thing, right? Traditionally, and the reason we can always eat berries now is because we're getting them from you know uh, Costa Rica or some other place, and and we're paying a tremendous energetic cost to bring that stuff over here, make keep it in reasonable condition, make it available to people. And all of this is done competitively at sort of relatively low cost, but none of those steps, growing the stuff over there in sort of industrial conditions, you know, so that then that country bears the energetic cost of uh, growing the stuff, the irrigation costs and all that, then they put that stuff on on transport, which is always fossil fuel powered. Yeah. And you know, so on and so forth. So you that question of ethics and what we eat um is really uh more complicated. Yeah. If we say to everybody, well, you're gonna have to live on the stuff you can grow by yourself in your backyard, that'd be a whole different story, I suspect. <clears throat> yeah, that's a terrifying, um, a terrifying thought, and it also assumes the presence of a backyard, which. Right, <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, I I think I mentioned this to you before, but um, when I um one of the uh, earlier times that I went to India I was in the mountains in summer um to escape the heat of the plains in North India, um and I um I had access to a kitchen, so I did my own cooking, and I went to buy vegetables, so I went to the vegetable store and. Um, I asked for carrots and 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 the guy looked at me and he said, you know, we don't have carrots. Um, and I said, oh, um, that's okay. Wh when are they coming? And he looked at me very puzzled and he said, December? Uh, <laughs> I, had, I mean, I had never considered that the carrots were a seasonal vegetable and it was, um, yeah, it was somewhat shaming and also very funny. <laughs> <laughs> and I learned to live without carrots um, and, and nothing bad happened. All right. Now that we're talking about food, we can seg nicely into um, the chili. So, I mean, I'm fascinated by the fact that so many foods that we consider staples of, for instance, uh, the South Asian diet are relatively new foods. Um, yeah. But it's probably true the world over that mm. if we go back uh, hundreds of years, people didn't eat any of the things that we now yeah. consider part and parcel of the diet of that particular region or culture. Um, and the chili is kind of emblematic of that. So when I chanced upon your syllabus, I, I couldn't believe my luck uh, that there was a, a, an expert on campus. So why the chili? Let's start there. Uh, well, it's, it's always fascinated me because it's... It's such an integral part of the Indian culture where I come from. And, um, you know, I've talked to a lot of people in India. They always assumed, and they a lot of them probably still believe, that the chili originated in India. Right. Uh, and then I have Chinese uh, people working in my lab, and they tell me all about the hot food they eat and the use of the chili pepper. And they say, well... Of course, chilies originated in China, you know, and so on. So, uh, and then, you know, I discovered as as I learned more about biology that, in fact, chili peppers originated in South America. And I've been down there. I've traveled 
in um, Chile, uh, in Peru, in um, various other countries uh, in South America, and also some countries in Central America. And it's fascinating the range of chilies that are that are available, um, how they're preserved, how they're used, um, and the different types of cuisine and tastes that you can get out of these things. And that's just in the, in the Americas. And then if you go over to Southeast Asia, you get a whole spectrum of, of tastes and uses. Uh, the Chinese have a very different approach to using chilies than Southeast Asia does mostly. And of course, India is yet another story. And sure. there's a tremendous range of stuff there. Um, North India and South India, East and West are all, all totally different in terms of what they grow, how they use the chilies, how they are put into the cuisine, you know, that kind of thing. Um, and then I started discovering more and more uses of chili pepper in Europe. So there's a lot of um, uh, uses of the pepper in, in Spain. And, you know, we have pimentos de padron, which uh, people eat a lot of in Northern Spain. And so, uh, you know, my wife discovered a wonderful essay by Calvin Frilling, who uh, is a, a very good writer, a very famous food writer. And he was talking about journeys in Spain, eating peppers. And so we kind of followed his route. <laughs> we found all these amazing peppers that they grow and they eat. Um, and then of course, there's Spanish paprikas. And then one day we ended up in Hungary for various reasons. And of course, there's all Hungarian paprikas, and yep. Hungarians are really into that. I mean, they they believe that goulash is part of their identity and right. paprika-based dish, and so on and so forth. And they, uh, you know, in in this traditional stories, paprika was a gift from the gods <laughs> or something, you know. And, uh, <laughs> so it was really it's been fascinating to me the the range of cultural um, ideas about chilies, the, uh, the range of methods that are used to preserve them and use them, and um, the fact that they've gotten into all these cultures in a very um, <clears throat> ingrained sort of way. I mean, and, and a lot of people believe that cooking is so traditional. You, know, you always say something like, well, we always did this or that or the other thing right my family or your family whatever and so and and in the united states for example you know you gotta it's it's getting rarer nowadays but you would see many generations at a meal like the thanksgiving meal and they'd always say well we always you know my great 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 whatever grandparent always had this kind of stuffing or whatever and so this idea that somehow cooking is very conservative, um, has really been handed down to us in lots of ways. And it turns out it ain't, you know. <laughs> uh, you look at uh, chili peppers and in about 200 years, they spread around the, around the globe and they became intrinsic to so many cuisines. And even in countries where they think they don't eat chili peppers, they actually do. I mean, I have Spanish friends. I talk to them about this, and they say, we don't use chili peppers. And I say, you use sweet peppers. It's the same species, just a, 
slightly different cultural. And they say, oh, really? Yes, we do. And Spanish, we use, and then I tell them about, about paprika, and they say, oh, yeah, of course, paprika. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, this goes on. <laughs> and uh, I was looking in my class, We one of the things we did was look at which countries export chilies. Mm -hmm. And it turns out that Spain is number three in the world. Wow. Number three. And I thought, number one is India, number two is China. And that, of course, makes sense. But Spain, number three, you know. Really but that's more of a sweet variety, I'm hearing you say, rather than a spicy hot. Yes. Uh, although they, they do make uh, various forms of Spanish paprika, which is mostly smoked. And they make a, a very zingy version of that. It's mostly sweet, but yeah, they do. So are there countries that do not use chili? I mean, I'm just thinking about, I grew up in the Netherlands and we don't have the world's most exciting food. Um, there's no chili. You know, it's it's not clear to me. For example, <laughs> if you look at um, uh, most of the countries right around France, which includes the Netherlands and um, to some extent, Spain and Northern Italy, um, they were strongly influenced by the French um, development of a culinary sort of culture. Yep. And, and they codified a lot of stuff, you know. So Escoffier and all these people, they kind of said, well, this is how it should be done. And a lot of those things didn't include the use of chili peppers. Um, and so uh, that's probably part of the story. Wow. The second is that most of those countries actually have uh, connections. I mean, the Dutch had an empire in the Dutch East Indies, uh, the French, of course, and so on. So they, they all had connections to places where chilies were used a lot. And it may be that in, in sort of more recent times, um, we just rely on migrant communities in these kinds of places because... In Amsterdam, for example, if you want spicy food, you get a, a rice waffle, you know, yeah. or something like that. And so you, but I, I don't, uh, I, I don't know much about why some cultures do and some don't. I mean, it's an interesting point because I mean, there's plenty of spicy food in in the Netherlands, and and yes, we eat a lot of Indonesian food. Uh, which we call Chinese because of the way street food worked in Indonesia. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, it can be spicy, can be not spicy, but it's usually pretty spicy. And, and there's lots of tokos, kind of quote-unquote ethnic supermarkets where people buy. And so people ask me, oh, you know, what's typical Dutch food? Uh, I don't know, potatoes. I... <laughs> But if you want to go for a good meal in Amsterdam, absolutely go for, for Rijstaf or Indonesian food or... Yeah you know any of the of the other um kind yeah. of community foods that don't don't you know skip the potatoes um although i will i feel i have to big up dutch pancakes um yes. much superior to the american pancake they are indeed. yes i, I have a, I'm a team member <laughs> let the hate mail begin okay <laughs> i will that that is a, that is a stance i'm willing to uh, to embrace um so how did the chili gets to India. Let's focus on India. Well, the jury is sort of out. You know, in, in a lot of this stuff, one of the uh, real difficulties for historians has been that there isn't a real history. I mean, a lot of these countries 
didn't have a written record. Uh, they didn't keep trade accounts and so forth. And so you have to rely on, um, you know, lots of different um, bits and pieces that you accumulate in terms of, say, journals that were kept by travelers or diaries. Or in the case of the chili pepper, it turns out that we have a lot of records from the Portuguese and the Spaniards. Because what they did was they were looking for, I mean, they found the chili pepper because they were actually looking with spice uh, producing countries. And they were looking for the Indies. I mean, they were looking for the source of things like black pepper and vanilla and nutmeg and cloves and so on. And so they were extremely, and the Portuguese actually went around Africa. They got to India, they got to Goa, and they were ecstatic. I mean, they actually were the first people out in that direction. And then they dominated the trade, the spice trade, um, going from India, essentially, where, I mean, a lot of it was produced in other places in Southeast Asia, but it was all collected in uh, Portuguese trading posts. And then it came around the Horn of Africa into Portugal, which then uh, sold this stuff on into Europe. And so we have records uh, of what the Portuguese uh, took with them and what they brought back. And it's it's very clear from those that they took chili peppers to places like Goa, Cochin, and so on. And these things, then it's sort of mysterious how they got into the cuisine. Uh, and we can go back to, there's a very good Indian historian of food who's done some work on this. And before the Portuguese came in, in Sanskrit, which is a you know good um, language that has lots of sources and so on, there was no word for chilies. So it's clear that they didn't know what it was. Right. They knew what peppers were. Um, but somehow they 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 uh, became uh, well the, the chili pepper in various forms became easily adopted, and that's a mystery too. I don't know why it happened. I suspect it's because the chili pepper makes at that time made an inexpensive substitute for black pepper. You know, you have to remember that maybe five hundred years ago. Black pepper really was, it was it, it was worth, almost worth its weight in silver. Wow. It was an extremely valuable commodity. Millions of kilos of black pepper a year were taken into Europe. And and you couldn't buy, I mean, you had to pay for this in actual silver, you know. Wow. And most of the poor people obviously couldn't afford it. Right. And so I think this was true in, in Asia too. And they just... But the chili was a godsend, and they, you know, you if, if it grew in your backyard or down the street or wherever, then you had a plant, and it's a plant that isn't very demanding. It doesn't need, it needs a well-drained soil, it needs reasonable temperatures, but that's pretty much the size of it. And so I suspect that's one of the driving factors behind it. Mm -hmm. um, in Europe, uh, they... Um, and this may have been true in, in parts of India as well. So in Europe, for example, a lot of the plants that came from um, the Americas, which included chili peppers, tomatoes, um, eggplant, they were all members of what the Europeans knew was the nightshade family. Mm -hmm. 
And so they were considered dangerous and poisonous plants. Right. Sure. And then gradually people sort of worked on, you know, A, demonstrating that they were not poisonous and B, preaching about their uses. Uh, and so, and a lot of it was a medicinal, you know, you have um, a chili pepper is going to be good for you or you know, whatever. And that helped a lot in its spread. Um, so really in, 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 in Asia, they overcame that. But it's not entirely clear how that happened. Yeah. Um, I suspect that in in India they had the black pepper, so that they used the chili pepper as a substitute that got in, got in. In China they had the Sichuan pepper. Yeah. They had a lot of uses for it. It's not really it's not a chili pepper. It's not a pepper either. It's a <laughs> completely different genus. But it's um, you know it's it's got that numbing kind of fiery quality. Yeah. And so. There's a lot of similarity, I assume, to chili peppers, and so the Chinese use um, quite a bit of chili pepper now, and they they add a little bit of Sichuan pepper to give it some extra flavor. And then the same thing happened in Korea. Um, they have gochujang and gochugaru, and those things historically, that is, a thousand years ago perhaps, were um, Sichuan pepper based. And then when the chili pepper came along, it was a lot cheaper and a lot easier. And there was a lot more variety. So that's how it presumably got um, got around. And and of course now, you know, one thing we do have now, which we didn't have then, is genetics. So we can actually um, look at the genetic differences between um, plants and species collected in different parts of the world. And, and then we can use methods to trace the history back. And we can check whether there are stories about how the chili got around are correct. Yeah. So this, this story about the Portuguese taking the chili to India is almost certainly true. It's, it's consistent with the gene, genetic story. So it's nice. I love that. That's science. Science backs it up now. Um, yeah. And but I also love the idea that at some point in time it was like, I don't know, I have this this vision of somebody going to somebody's house. Have you heard of this new thing, a chili pepper? And they're like, <laughs> oh, that'll never catch on. And <laughs> <laughs> are you is part of your work at all on kind of fad foods or new foods? I'm a, I'm a recent convert to to ube. I have um, to admit, I don't know what it is, but it makes a mean latte. Um, <laughs> and there's things like kale and quinoa that yeah. we don't even know really why. Well, I don't really know why they become so popular, but they do. Mm -hmm. um, and then they either stay or go. I think arugula m might have had its heyday. And um, <laughs> I'm not sure. Um, so do you work on that? Do you, do you look at that at all? I don't really work on it. I, I am... I have to confess, a foodie. So oh, okay. I, I keep up with a lot of these friends or I read about them. And uh, sometimes I even try this stuff in um, in our cooking and what have you. Um, I think there's just a tremendous interest these days in sort of traditional crops. And in fact, most of these crops are not new. They've been around, such as quinoa, for example, right. was because they were the primary sources of protein or starch or something like that in some part of the world. And then suddenly somebody goes down there and says, 
aha, I can, I can use this to make a mug. <laughs> That's probably why it takes on. So, and, and now we've got, you know, all kinds of means and machinery for spreading new stuff. And, and, you know, it's essentially a marketing machine right. that drives it. So um, nothing wrong with that. I mean, it keeps, keeps life interesting. <laughs> For sure. I mean, one does hear stories about certain communities no longer have access to something that was their staple because um, it's yeah. oversold in Whole Foods or whatever. I mean, capitalism makes it a little bit more complicated. Um, but yeah. we do have access to so many interesting foods. I'm curious, who takes your class? Do you have a sense oh. of who your students are and, and, and why they're interested in the chili pepper? So two things. One is, this is one of the few... Uh, universities which actually lets you teach courses um, on interesting topics or topics that are interesting <laughs> to you. you know, otherwise, Burn everywhere else. <laughs> well, it's sort of standardized. You know, if you if you if you were to propose a course like this at many a school, <laughs> including some I've worked at, you'd say, "Well, that sounds too fady right. or you can't do that." Um, but a you know, the, the, we have um, systems that are receptive to it. Yeah. And B, um, I thought it might make a fun course, mm -hmm. both um, historically and scientifically. And C, uh, the students. So I don't really know. I assume that most of the students got attracted to it because, okay, so let me back up a bit. The way this this is the first time I've offered this course. Okay. And the way we did it was we just, I talked to the people who run this um, intro SAM program, which is for freshmen and sophomores. Mm -hmm. And they helped me with, you know, sort of putting the stuff together. They thought it was a good idea. And then we just sort of waited. And it turns out that a student who is interested in the course actually writes, uh, you know, three or four lines about why they want to take it. Uh -huh. And so it turns out that I was, I ended up, I decided that I would only accept 10 students in the class uh, because I wanted to be able to interact with them. Yeah. Um, and there were more than 40 that were interested. Oh my God. And they wrote little essays and, and most of them, um, either they come from a background where they've been exposed to chilies a lot. So I have, people, either people who've traveled a lot or people um, with some ethnic background, Mexican, um, Nepalese, uh, and so on. Mm -hmm. And so they they have that in, in their culture. And they were, in, you know, something about the way the course was put together caught their interest. You know, they thought, well, oh, I've never thought about that. You know, so yeah. Um, the other thing is, it's really, I try as, as far as possible <clears throat> to have part of the course be a hands-on thing. So we have a farm at Stanford. Yeah. Um, and we, and, and that farm actually has some, they're not the greatest, but they, it has some kitchen facilities. Mm -hmm. so they have a barbecue, they have um, blenders, they have a microwave oven and so forth. And so we did a session uh, maybe two weeks ago at the farm and um, it was great. We got, I got the students to roast sweet peppers and you know they roasted them on the grill and then I got them to 
actually peel them and um, you know de-seed them and so yeah. forth mm-hmm. and so it makes a nice you know sweet salad yeah and we made a harissa which is based on Mexican dried peppers and so I got them to again chop those up and de-seed them and stem them and you know soften them up in a microwave oven so they they sort of got a hands-on feel for what was involved and then I I made a batch for them and the second batch I said you can do what you want you know you can make it hotter you can make it this or that or the other thing and they they came up with a very good batch <laughs> and all of it disappeared with, <laughs> with crackers and chips uh, and we're going to do a an Indian themed session and a Chinese themed session. Love it. So um, that gets people into actually understanding what these things look like and how they, you know, the tactile feel of them and the smell and and what it contributes to taste, which is something that you don't get unless you actually uh, do something yourself, you know, and see how it comes together. So. I, I, it sounds amazing, of course, really fun and delicious, but also you zoom out a little back to um, you essentially being a philosopher. Um, there's something about the the um, the same but different that we started talking about that I think is a very hands-on experience here. And, and it sounds like there's thousands of varieties of chili that are very meaningful to lots of regional cuisines. Um, and yet they come from a kind of a, a common source. And I think there's a lot there to be discussed and, and can lead to really beautiful conversations, I imagine, over a really great meal. <laughs> yes. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. This was really fun and I'm very inspired by your syllabus. And um, I'm not going to encourage students too hard to take the class because it sounds like you've got quite the wait list. Will you continue to do it? I know this is... The yeah, I... I certainly plan to do it again next year. Uh, Great. Happy to have any students show up. <laughs> Fantastic. Well, thank you. We will link to it in the in the notes for the podcast. Uh, thank you for making time for me today. You're quite welcome. Thank you. Uh, as always, I want to thank Soim Shiva for creating the intro and outro to the podcast, Simrat Matari for post-production. And I want to encourage all our listeners to please rate and review us on whatever platform you're listening on uh, to bring more listeners to the Saspa. Thank you for listening to the SASPOD, the South Asian Studies at Stanford podcast. Find out all about the Stanford Center for South Asia at southasia.stanford.edu and find us on social media. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Thank you for joining us, and I hope you can tune in again soon. (laughs) 